All righty, my name is Lyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And just like uh, Dan probably said earlier, I wasn't in here earlier, so I think you probably said this. If it's your first time, just want to say welcome. Uh, we're thrilled you're here. Just encourage you to fill out a connect cards in the seat back in front of you, just a way for you uh, to kind of make your presence known. And we promise we won't come hound you or beat your door down. We just want to find ways we can pray, as well as just kind of help you understand what we're about here uh, at Sojourn. So yeah, if you got a Bible, I encourage you to go to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. We're going to start reading at the very end of that chapter and read through verse uh, 11 of chapter 23. My desire today is to um, work through about two and a half chapters with using one verse. All right. So I know it sounds kind of weird, but that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to look at one verse primarily, uh, but use two and a half chapters to sort of kind of unpack uh, that one verse. All right. So uh, if you're able, why don't you stand with me in honor of reading God's word. So we're going to start there at uh, verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. You got the passage in your handout as I see people looking as well as on the screen. And then we're going to read down to a verse 11 in chapter 23. And so obviously we're kind of picking up in the middle of a deal here. And I'll sum up what's going on there here in just a few minutes. But hear the word of the Lord. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. And Paul looked straight at Sanhedrin and said, and Sanhedrin just kind of a religious council, sort of. All right, so it's kind of, so you know what's going on there. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, high, at, at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those around standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Yeah, that, that's pretty strong words there, man. You sit there. To judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? And then Paul replied, brothers, I, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees said that there's no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The disputes became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces. So he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And then this is the verse we're kind of focusing on this morning, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Man, Father, we just uh, come to you once again this morning asking for your help to understand what you've said to us in this word. And Lord, you have, you have said to us that you want us to give thanks for all things, to fear nothing except losing you, and to, to lay all our cares on you knowing that you care for us. 
So Father, protect us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties and grant that no clouds in this mortal life may hide from us the light of your immortal love that has shone so brightly to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the things that we kind of asked our church to do or asked you guys to do over the course of this series that we started back in the fall is we kind of wanted to pray as a body through three things. And we kind of put that in an acronym of ACT, you know, A for all would go, C for courage, and T for tear down barriers. And so hopefully the Lord has prompted you over the course of the last several months uh, to kind of just pray those for not only our church, but also for yourself in particular. And so this morning, I, I want to spend some time just talking about the C word that we've been praying for in our own lives, and that is courage. I think most of us in this room would say that when we think of the word courage, the first thing that comes to our mind are, you know, those moments where we just kind of have these massive feats of someone doing something that's absolutely, you know, over the top kind of courageous. You know, I think about uh, a couple of movies that are uh, getting a lot of press today and encourage you to see them if you haven't seen them. One is uh, uh, The Hidden Figures, where a group of African-American women who were intricate in kind of the, the race to get to the moon, where you got, and I remember the scene, if you hadn't seen this, you need to kind of go watch this. I remember the scene where Katherine Johnson, which is what the movie's about, when she steps into that room full of all these engineers and they're all men who are white. And when she steps in there, man, there's just a you just feel the kind of courage that she needed to not only step in there, but eventually had to speak up. And so when we think about courage, we think about those moments. We also think about like uh, the movie Hacksaw Ridge where uh, Desmond Doss, you know, without ever carrying a gun, saves 75 people in one of the most bloodiest battles in Japan. I mean, just a, uh, an amazing feat of courage that you see put on display in that movie. And so so what I want to offer to you today is that, yeah, I'm not saying that those are not courageous, but sometimes we just have a, have a tendency to just focus on those pieces and forget that there's a lot of everyday courage that goes on in our lives. And a little book by a lady named Brene, Brene Brown, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, but she's kind of a, this is kind of weird, but she's a shame researcher, which that's kind of what she does. She researches uh, shame. And she wrote a little book, she's wrote several, but she wrote a little book several years ago called Daring Greatly. And within that book, she kind of like lays out for us more of uh, what I would call kind of everyday kind of courage. So let's, let's not just think about courage and these massive feats that we see with people like Katherine Johnson and Desmond Doss, but also just kind of the everyday courage that's put on display that we step into on a daily basis. And here's a few, all right, that she lays out here. I think I got them on the screen here. So courage can be asking for help. Courage can be saying no. Courage can be helping my 37-year-old wife with stage four cancer make decisions about her will. Courage can be signing up my mom for hospice care. Courage can be saying I love you first and not knowing if I'm going to be loved back. I experienced that with my wife. That's a whole different story, but I, it all worked out. But that's another story in itself. I've shared that with some of you guys. Courage is getting pregnant after three miscarriages. Courage is getting promoted and not knowing if I'm going to succeed. Courage is waiting for the biopsy to come back. Courage is, I love this one, exercising in public, especially when you don't know what you're doing, as well as your way out of shape, right? Takes a lot of courage to do that. Courage is being accountable. Courage is asking for forgiveness. Courage is admitting you're afraid. 
That's what I want to do this morning. I, I want to just take verse 11, because I do think these two and a half chapters kind of land with verse 11. I really think that's kind of the climactic piece here in these two chapters. And the theme, obviously, as you see there, is Jesus comes and he says these words to Paul. Take courage. And so I just want to ask two questions this little text. That's all I'm doing this morning, two questions. And one is this, why, why take courage? Why does Jesus come and say that specifically to Paul? Why? Why take courage? And then the second one is how? How do I step into this? What does this look like in my own life? So the first one is, why, why does Jesus come with this word, take courage? And so this this verse here is in the middle of a context that goes all the way back to really chapter 20. We read it last week where the Holy Spirit was compelling Paul to go to, go to Jerusalem, kind of setting his face toward Jerusalem, even though he, he knew he's going to face a lot of opposition and, and pain and sorrow and suffering was headed that way. So we see that's, that's kind of the context. In the first part of 21, we see that he finally lands in Jerusalem and he He's greeted with a warm welcome with the church in Jerusalem. He kind of gives a, a report of all the work, works that's been going on amongst the Gentiles. They celebrate that. And, and one of the things that James asked Paul to do is that he would take a Nazarite vow. And I'm not going to dive into why they wanted him to do that. Primarily, they wanted him to do that is because there was a lot of rumors going on in this time that, that Paul was kind of like undermining the law of, of, of God and kind of just really blowing all that up. And a lot of Jews were ticked off and mad and and James just felt like this would be a wise way for him to kind of stop the rumors and calm people down. And so he took this Nazarite vow, and when he in, enters into the temple, they thought everything would be great, but man, actually chaos broke out. And the Jews uh, from a, a part of the Asia area saw him in the temple, and, and they go and grab him. They drag him out of the temple. They shut the door, and it's like chaos ensues from there. And this all starts in chapter 21, verse 27. And it's kind of like Luke kind of unpacks three little episodes that happen here that get us to verse 11 of chapter 23. So once he's dragged out of the temple and in verse 30, this is what you can, so you can kind of feel what's going on in the city here as they see Paul. I mean, there's just a lot of venom and hatred toward him. Look what they say here in verse 30 of chapter 21. The whole city was stirred up and the people came running from, from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, so they're like, this isn't just trying to have a discussion with Paul. They're trying to kill the man. Here's a, and while they're trying to kill him, a Roman officer, Roman commander, hears about what the chaos is. Hey, there's, a, there's an uproar that's going on here. You need to step in. And then verse 33, the Roman guard steps in. And this is what he says. Then he, talking about the Roman guard, asked who he was and what he'd done. He had no idea what's going on. Who is this guy and what has he done? And some in the crowd shouted one thing, some in another. And since the commander could not get at the truth, because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him, away with him. And so as they're dragging him into prison, this is kind of the end of scene one, as they're dragging him into prison, Paul turns around to this guard and says, hey, give me a chance here. Let me, let me address this crowd, which leads us to sort of episode two that begins in verse 1 of chapter 22. And so he addresses the crowd. And basically what he does here is he just shares his story. He shares how he was once, a, a, you know, an adamant Jew, a Pharisee, above all Pharisees, and, and sought the law and was zealous for the law. And then Jesus came and radically changed his life. And whenever he, 
he gets to the end there in verse 21. He says that the Lord gave him a mission, and his mission was to go to the Gentiles. And when he says that, once again, craziness ensues. And this leads us to the kind of third episode that begins in chapter 23. And what happens here is that they are so angry. They are so mad about him. And this Roman guard is going, I don't know what is going on here. Like, why are people so angry with Paul? I just don't get what he has done. And to try to come to the bottom of this, he sort of calls this religious council for him to stand before this religious council and sort of find out what is going on. Why is why are you guys so angry with Paul? And that's what we just got done reading there in verse 10. We read again in chapter 23. You know, he throws out, you know, sort of this little uh, little theological bomb about the resurrection and knew these two parties disagreed with it. about, And so they just go nutso. And it's so violent. Was remember in verse 10, look what it says. Here, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces by them. And so he ordered the troops to go down, take him away, from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so I know I just ran through this really quickly, and I encourage you to go back and read these two chapters. But when you come to the end here, especially with verse 11, before you even read that, here's the question you got to ask. What is going on inside Paul at this moment? Like what is happening in Paul's interior world after he's walked through all three of these episodes? And some of us would say, well, you know, he's cool. He's calm, right? The Spirit of God came to him and said, hey, you're going to Jerusalem, and it's not going to be great. It's going to be filled with hardship and opposition, and people are going to be upset with you. They're going to try to pose you, all kinds of suffering. So, you know, so we, we can kind of make the assumption at this moment when he's laying in his barracks and at the, at the end of the deal and kind of reflecting on all this, he could be just saying, well, you know, I kind of expected this. This is, this is what, you know, this is what I you knew what's going to happen. I'm good. I'm calm. Well, I would argue that that's not the case. I would argue that Paul is full of uncertainty. And I would argue that Paul is full of anxiety and fear. And he is afraid at this moment. Now, why would you say that? Well, how, well like, it seems like you're kind of speculating or reading into this text. Well, I'll give you two reasons on why I think Paul is full of fear in this moment. One is this, is how Jesus uses this word elsewhere. So that word courage, he uses it four times in the gospel. The very same word courage, he uses uses it four other times. And every time he uses it is in the midst of someone that feels helpless and uncertain and full of fear. One of them is, and I'm not going to, I think these are on a slide, but I'm not going to use those, Michael. I'm just going to walk these real quick. Matthew chapter 9, if you'll go to this, Matthew chapter 9, it's used for the, uh, the paralyzed man who comes to Jesus. He's full of uncertainty, been paralyzed since birth. And Jesus looks at this man and says, take heart. Same word that's used for Paul in verse 11 of chapter 23. The second time is further down in Matthew chapter 9, verse 22, when the woman who has been bleeding forever and ever and ever and doesn't know what's going on with her and just wants to be healed from this bleeding, Jesus looks at her and says the very same word, take heart. You go to Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are out on this massive lake, a massive storm comes up, they're freaking out, they're helpless with the storm, they're full of fear, and then they see Jesus, who they think is a ghost, they didn't know it was Jesus, they think it's a ghost, and Jesus is walking on the water, and what's the first words that he says to them? Take 
courage, the very same word that's used for heart in the other two places and the same word that's used in chapter 23, verse 11 for Paul. And the one that we are most familiar with is in John chapter 16, where Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples. He just predicted that Judas was going to betray him. Judas leaves. And they're going, whoa, what's going on? This guy's been with us the whole time. He seemed like he was on our team. And now he's going off to betray him. They also, Jesus also predicts that one of their leaders, Peter, is going to deny him. So this is, this is all going on in this dinner. And then Jesus lays down another bomb. Hey, guess what? I'm going to die. So in the midst of great uncertainty, in the midst of great confusion, in the midst of probably a whole lot of anxiety and fear, this is what Jesus says to them in John 16, 33, and I think it's on the screen here. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, what? You may have peace, because why? In this world, you will have trouble. This is the same word, but take heart. Take heart. The same word that Jesus says to Paul. The reason why I think Paul's full of a lot of anxiety here and fear and uncertainty is because Jesus used that same word in the midst of a lot of uncertainty elsewhere in the Gospels. The second reason I think that is what Paul wrote later. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, Paul's reflecting upon this little event. Listen to what he says here. At my first defense, talking about what took place in chapters 21 to 23 in Acts, no one came to my support. The church didn't show up for him. When Peter was put into prison, the church prayed for him. No one came to his support. He was all alone. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. And so look, even the reflection of what Paul writes later about this scene shows us that in that moment, this was a very dark time for Paul. No one showed up for him. He doesn't give us a reason. Luke doesn't give us a reason. But we know this, it hurt Paul. It left a big wound in him. And just like all of us in this room would feel, we'd feel a lot of uncertainty. We'd feel a lot of doubt. Like, what, what's going on here? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should have listened to some counseling. Maybe I should have never showed up in Jerusalem because things aren't going well. And not only things are not going well, nobody, nobody in the church came and stood by me. I'm on my own. I'm by myself. And in this moment, I would make a huge argument that this Paul would feel the same way we would feel, a lot of fear. And I would also say if he didn't need courage, then Jesus wouldn't have showed up and said, take courage. And so Here's the connection for all of us in this room. All of us, all of us are faced with uncertainty. But only some of us know it. You follow me? Here's our connection with Paul. Yeah, our situation isn't exactly what Paul is. But all of us in this room are faced with uncertainty. But only some of us know it. What I mean by that was some of you here today have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And for the first time in your life, you're, you're faced with a whole lot of uncertainty. You have no idea what your quality of life's going to be. You're not sure if you should take the medication or not. You're concerned about your spouse, what's going to happen with her or him. 
Some of you this week lost your job. Wow. There's a whole lot of uncertainty in that. How are you going to pay your bills? How am I going to start a new job? There's all kinds of fear and anxiety that comes. Some of you in this room have aging parents. You're not sure exactly how to care for them and love them well. It's bringing a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear and anxiety. Some of you in this room, over the course of maybe a month or even this week, have found that your spouse is going to leave you. You know what I'm saying? All of us are faced with uncertainty, but some of us in this room know it. Some of you in this room are getting ready to graduate, whether it's through from seminary or from college or from high school. That's a lot of uncertainty. I remember when I was 18 years old, graduating high school, going, oh, my goodness. Or even when I graduated college, like, what am I going to do? Like, what, am I, what am I ready for, right? And so some of you in this room, since God's saying to you, stop hiding, there's a lot of fear. Look, all of us are faced with uncertainty, but only some of us know it. And what do we need most in the midst of this is we need a confidence, a firm purpose in the face of great uncertainty and great opposition. You need courage, just like Paul needed. So how? How do I step into this, right? How do we... How do we see Paul stepping in and taking courage? I'm going to give you two ways. One is remember, and the second one is receive. Remember, receive. Remember, receive. First one, remember, you're not an orphan. I'll say it again. Remember, you're not an orphan. One author says this, a fearful Christian is a forgetting Christian. And I'm not trying to... um, overly simplify the issues of anxiety and fear that all of us deal with. I'm not. I'm not. Like, we are way more complex beings than for me to just kind of offer a, a little trinket of a simple formula that you need to just remember that you are not an orphan, that you are a child of God. But I would also argue that this is where it begins. Like, this is key to us dealing with our anxieties and fear. This is key in the midst of all kinds of uncertainty that we can step in and take courage. It isn't the only answer, but I would say it is the one of the most profound and foundational answers. And that is this, you need to remember that you're not an orphan, that you are a child of God. Now look, look what happens here. Look, don't, don't blow by this verse. In verse 11, Jesus does this, the following night, the Lord stood near. Jesus didn't just come and say, hey, I'm for you. Here's a message. I am for you. Jesus comes and stands near him. Now, Luke doesn't give us, you know, exactly how this played out. He doesn't tell us whether Paul saw a vision and Jesus was right there or whether the Holy Spirit just made an overwhelming way for him to be aware of the presence of Jesus. Whatever happened there, Paul knew that Jesus was right next to him. And if you'll remember in Acts chapter 18 and another element of where there's a massive crisis going on in Paul's life, look what happened in this one. In verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you. In the midst of great uncertainty where fear and anxiety are, are at play in our own lives and we need courage, I need to remind, be reminded that Jesus is not only for me, but he's also 
with me. And that's exactly what Jesus does for Paul in the midst of one of his great moments of fear and anxiety and afraid. And like, what's going on here? Am I doing something stupid? Help me out here. Jesus comes and stands near him. And hear me. Yeah, our, our situation may not be the same. Our, like Jesus may not come and give you a vision of his nearness. You may not see a physical representation of Jesus there. And the Holy Spirit may not come and give you an overwhelming sense like he does for Paul. But what is fundamentally true here for Paul is fundamentally true for you if you are in Christ. Why? Because you're a child of God. You are a son or a daughter of King Jesus. And over and over, Jesus makes us aware that he is not just for us, but he is with us. And I would argue probably in the most, these intense times of where there's great crisis in our lives, he is more present with us than what we even realize. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, when he's talking to these 12 disciples, they're freaking out. They don't know what's going on here. He just died. He rose from the dead and now he's leaving and he gives them this great commission. But at the end of that is so beautiful and surely, and surely what? I am with you always. Yeah, I know you're afraid. Like we got, sometimes we have a way of just like looking at the Bible and just reading into it in the wrong way. Look, I'm telling you what, those 11 guys are freaking out. Jesus is leaving. He's giving them this commission to go into all the world. They're going, you are nuts. Where are you going, right? And the encouraging word that he gives to them is, I am not just for you, but I am with you always. John chapter 14, 18, he says this in the midst of that last meal there. I will not leave you as what? As orphans. But what's going to happen? I, I will come to you. Romans chapter 8, when that the greatest chapters that Paul ever wrote, and he wrote a lot of great chapters, but one Romans 8 is one of the best ones. In verse 15, just kind of building on this idea of the witness of Jesus, that I'm a child of God. Look what he says here. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But what do you have? But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus, with you, your child of God. For a lot of us in this room, I, would, I mean, I would argue that, and maybe I'm just speaking to myself, and that's okay, because I do this quite often when I'm up here. But here's what I would say, is that a lot of us confessionally believe this, don't we? Like, this is not news that's new to you all, most of us in this room. Most of us will confessionally believe that, yeah, I'm a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm a child. I'm not an orphan. You need to remember that. That's what gives me strength and courage in the midst of a lot of uncertainty. We would confessionally believe this, but then I would argue, how does that work out functionally in your life? Yeah, we can give confessional belief to this, but then is it really functionally happening in your world? Jack Miller, who's a man... Passed away back in the mid-90s. He was a pastor, a seminary professor in the Philadelphia area. Did a, a, a ton of research in this area of, of, of being a child of God. He kind of developed this, um, this theology called Sonship Theology. Um, again, this organization called World Mission. I mean, just a, just a great man who's left his imprint on a lot of pastors, all right? And a lot of that has to do with just understanding the fatherhood of God and that you're a child and what does that really look like? 
And he put together this diagnostic sort of kind of like a, a way for you to kind of see functionally, am I functioning more as an orphan or am I functioning more as a child of God? And, and, I, and we put this, kind of condensed this down. It's in a massive list that he put together, exhaustive one. But I kind of, we've kind of put it, condensed it down to words, like five things here for us to think on. How am I really functioning as an orphan or am I functioning as a child of God? And I think there's a slide up here that might be helpful for you as I kind of walk through this. And so maybe there's not, maybe there is no, no slides. So you can just kind of listen to me. All right. So here, here's here. Am I an orphan or am I a child of God? If you're, you functionally feel alone, you lack a daily intimacy with God. I am full of self-concern. If that's you, then you're functioning more like an orphan. Instead, a child of God has a growing assurance that God is really my loving heavenly father. You're, if you're functioning as an orphan, you're, you're anxious about relationships, about money, about health, about school, about work, about family. If you're functioning as a child of God, you trust your heavenly father. You have a growing confidence in his loving care. If you're functioning more like an orphan. You live on a succeed-fail basis. I need to look good. I need to be right. I'm, I am performance-driven. Or if you're functioning as a child of God, I'm learning to live in a daily partnership with God, and I'm not fearful. If you're functionally living like an orphan, you feel condemned, you feel guilty, you feel unworthy before God and other people. If you're functioning as a child of God, you feel loved, forgiven, and totally accepted because of Jesus Christ. If you're functioning like an orphan, you have little faith in God, my Father, lots of fear, lots of faith in myself. I've got to fix things. But if you're functioning as a child of God, I have a daily trust in God's plan for my life, which is loving, wise, and best for me. I believe that God is good. So where are you? And I can get you guys this list if you want it. So I can put it up on the city or just email me and I can get it to you. But, but where are you? I mean, I don't, I don't think this is overstepping. I think this, I mean, a lot of us probably rolling in this room who are, who, are, who are riddled with anxiety, overwhelmed by your guilt, feel a ton of shame. You, you have a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty that's going on in your world, and you, you even feel guilty about the anxiety. You feel guilty about worrying because, you know, the Bible tells me not to worry, and you come in here feeling guilty, and you're hearing a sermon about anxiety and worry, and you're, like, probably feeling all the guilt about that. You know what I'm saying? It's... Like, I, I don't think I'm stretching it to think there's a lot of us in here feeling this way. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded often, and I need to remember my position in Jesus and God's posture toward me. That I'm loved, that I'm chosen, that I'm called, that I'm empowered, and then I'm a child of God. Like I'm not, again, I'm not trying to give simplistic answers, right? But I am trying to say this is the foundational answer. If you need courage, remember, remember, you're not an orphan. You're a child of God. Secondly, you've got to receive. And what do you got to receive? you got to receive the words of Jesus because the words of Jesus are what sustain you. 
What do you have to receive? You've got to receive the words of Jesus because the words of Jesus are what sustains us. Look what he does here in verse 11. The following night, yeah, the Lord stood near him, and then what else happened? And he said, and he said. So it wasn't like just, hey, I'm standing near you. I want you to feel my presence. No, he spoke to him. He gave him a specific word. Take courage, Paul. Take courage, Paul. And you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in, in Rome. There is a sustaining power to the very words of Jesus. They are like no other words that we have for us, like none other that you would ever read. There is a sustaining power to the very words of Jesus. Guys, we get this in horizontal relationships. We do. We get this. We get the power of a word spoken to us, whether it's from a parent whether it's from a, a, a significant other, whether it's from someone that you look up to, there's something about the verbal word being spoken to you that has a way of sustaining and giving you power. I think about my, my brother Josh in the midst of, you know, last Sunday in between the two services just came to me and gave me a word that I needed to hear in that moment. Gave me a specific word that had a way of bringing sustaining power in me. That's why over and over we see this in the book of Proverbs. Just give you a couple samples. Proverbs 12, verse 25. An anxious heart weighs a man down. But what brings about life? But a kind word cheers him up. Proverbs 18, 21. The tongue or words have power. They have both the power of life and death. And this is primarily talking about horizontal relationships. So then therefore I would say how much more the words of Jesus, because they're like no other words that are spoken. How much more are the words of Jesus going to help a heart that's weighed down by anxiety? Because the words of Jesus have a power in and of themselves. I can't fully explain it, but I have experienced it. The words of Jesus are what sustain us through some of the most uncertain moments in our lives that produce a ton of anxiety and fear like no other words. And so in the midst of this, Paul doesn't need to hear a word from James in this moment unless James has given him a word from Jesus, right? He needs to hear the voice of Jesus because the voice of Jesus brings about a sustaining power in our lives, in the most uncertain moments and seasons that we face. As most of you know, and some of you may, this may be new, news to you, but the Lord graciously gave us a little girl uh, back in 2004. Uh, we had her for five months. She, uh, she died of pneumonia. Uh, it was May of 2004, October of 2004. So she'd been uh, 13 years old this coming May. Um, crazy to think it's been that long. But when I, when I think back to those five months that we, we had our daughter, I'm just telling you, it was a, um, like it was, it was a blur. When I think back on that, it's, it's just so, uh, sometimes it feels like it didn't really happen. At times it feels so surreal and like it almost feels like it, it's a, that, that really, that feels like it happened in another life. Like I don't even, like it's hard for me to kind of step into that fully, but I do like there are three kind of episodes that, that I do remember really well. One of them was, I remember when the, um, um, the heart doctor came in and, and sat down with Kathy and I and said, look, 
here's what's going on with Kay. She's got a, a rare disease called pulmonary hypertension, uh, which is basically a, a high blood pressure in your lungs. And if she got this when she was a teenager, this can be treated by medicine, but if you're born with this, uh, you, you've got about two to four years to live, and that is if you get a, a lung transplant. So when you, like, I, you know, I don't even know, I can't even describe, like, what was going on in that moment. I'm just, like, some of you are going, like, you want to just say, are you for real? Like, you, like, for real? Like, you just don't ever think that would happen to you. You hear about it, but you never think it's going to happen to you. Second time, I moment I kind of remember, and this is shortly after um, I, we got this news. I was out in the backyard with Michael Brown and Joseph, who at that time was five and three, pretty young. And I just remember, and I, they probably thought it was kind of weird because, you know, they, they, don't, they don't understand. They, they remember a, a little bit, but I just remember being out there with them and just watching them play and enjoying life. And I just remember grabbing both of them and just holding them tightly and just weeping. Just weeping. I had no idea what's going on. I don't even remember if they said anything. I just, I just remember being in that backyard weeping. And the third thing I remember is I, I took on the, the kind of the role of, of um, feeding Kay early in the morning because we, we had to get her weight up. This was kind of in the, the middle of the summer. And so just a, we had a pretty strict regimen of when we were feeding her and stuff. And and to try to give Kathy some rest that she desperately needed, I would take the kind of early morning shifts. And I just, I remember sitting in my, and I still got this little rocker, and maybe that's why I haven't gotten rid of it, even though it's nasty and falling apart. And I've got to sit on a, like three pillows in order to sit on the thing because it's just so uncomfortable. But maybe that's the reason I haven't gotten rid of it. But I would sit in this little blue rocker with her, and I would feed her, and I, and I, would, I would read these two songs. There, there are sections of them. And I just want to read them to you. And I would use these as, as a means of just praying over her. And, and I would argue that they um, sustain me in that moment, and they still do. It's not like I'm over this. Psalm 92 says this. The righteous will flourish. Like a palm tree. It will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright, He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in them. I desperately needed that because I didn't feel like God was upright. I didn't feel like he was very righteous. Psalm 27, we actually have this engraved on the back of Kay's gravestone. It says this, I will stand confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait. Wait. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. 
Guys, I don't know everybody's story in this room. But whether you know it or not, you have a lot of uncertainty in your life. And when we have uncertainty in our life, what we have a tendency to do is we want to control, right? I can control it. Then I'll feel okay. I want to have fear and anxiety. Well, you may have not figured this out yet, but I'm just going to tell you, just give you a little heads up. It doesn't work. Because the older you get, the more you realize you don't have any control. And I'm here to tell you, you're going to need words that are not from your dad, not from your mom, that are not from a good friend. You're going to need the words of Jesus because there's no other words that can sustain you through seasons of uncertainty, questioning, doubting, that breed a lot of fear and anxiety in you. You need courage. Remember, remember, you're a child of God. You're not an orphan. He loves you bunches. You receive the sustaining words of Jesus because there's no other words that can do it for you. If you're not a Christian here, please hear me. I'm not saying receive Jesus and then you'll get courage, right? I'm not saying that. I, I am saying this. You're faced with a ton of uncertainty. And there's a better way to live. There is. Instead of trying to control, there's a better way. And that better way is to give and surrender your life fully to Jesus. Be done with trying to run your own stuff because you can't do it. The only way, or I would say the, the beginning step to dealing with uncertainty and fear and anxiety it's okay. I, I surrender. I'm done. I need Jesus. I need Jesus.